My goal is maybe get into real estate also to help my friends do what I've been able to do. A lot of them are asking me about it and spend more time with my family. And hopefully grandkids. My daughter's married three years now, so maybe in the near future we'll have grandkids to take care of. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome and good evening from Tampa, Florida. This is a very special episode today. And I have a feeling you know why it is a special episode. Because it is episode 1300. Yes, another century mark, episode 1300. Thanks for joining me. That, of course, also means it's a 10th episode show. And today we are going to talk with our guest about something quite fascinating. And here is the fascinating thing. Ancient technologies. Now, years ago, well, I guess it's many, many years ago in a way, but I hadn't heard it expressed this way in the term with the phrase ancient technologies. A friend of mine was who really studies this stuff as a student of history, science, science fiction, all of the above, and he was talking to me about how we are in not the first technological revolution but the second or maybe the third or fourth or fifth. And there's all sorts of evidence, like the Baghdad battery, as you've probably heard of that, this ancient battery that was found long before battery technology existed. And, uh, hey, how'd they build the pyramids? Nobody knows, right? <laughs> nobody knows. There's lots of theories, but nobody really knows. So we're going to talk with our guest today about ancient technologies. And uh, maybe... What we think is modernity ain't so modern, really. Maybe there were a lot of technologies before that somehow we just don't know about, right? We have some clues, but we don't have, like, overwhelming evidence that there were advanced technologies before. Well, I guess you could say the pyramids are pretty overwhelming, that Stonehenge is pretty overwhelming, that the Baghdad battery is pretty overwhelming, and all sorts of other stuff. So we'll dive into that subject with our guest today. But before we do that here on episode 1300, and uh, we go off topic and talk about something of general interest, not about real estate investing or the economy. But before we do that, let's do just a little bit of that here in the monologue portion. So I'm at this conference. I've got a little speaking engagement here. I'm with about 150 people who are entrepreneurs lots of real estate entrepreneurs here. This event skews towards real estate, though it's not exclusively for real estate investing. And I'll tell you something, with all the signs, and there are definitely some signs, of a looming recession, there's a lot of optimism in this room. Now, maybe it skews that way just because, hey, 
entrepreneurs are generally kind of optimistic, right? They have to be. What other choice is there? You're not going to make it taking risk and being an entrepreneur if you're not somewhat optimistic, right? You got to believe in ideas when the world doesn't believe in you, when nobody else believes in you. So there's some definite optimism in the room. Then I look at the newspaper, yes, the good old-fashioned newspaper, and um, it tells me that producer prices fall for the first time since June. Now, the producer price index, the PPI, is a common gauge of how the economy is doing, whether we are in a deflationary cycle or an inflationary cycle, and producer prices have fallen which shows us that inflation is tame. And, uh, you know, that could be a sign that things are kind of cooling off a bit. You know, maybe a valid one. I don't know. It's too short of a time period to make a judgment. It's a very small sample, obviously. But it is nonetheless a sign. And Samsung, right below that, predicts a drop of 56% in profits for the third quarter. Now, of course, they had some significant problems with that last phone debacle, the folding phone that didn't really work. You turn the page, and it says that, uh, and this is USA Today, by the way, look for a Social Security raise on October 10th. So Social Security is getting a raise in inflationary sign. Nonetheless, of course, the UAW is on strike. And the last thing I've got to tell you here is that there is an article entitled Secret to a Longer Life. Get a dog, the study says. Attention dog owners, your furry friend could extend your life. A study published today by Circulation, the Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes, a peer-reviewed journal. That's a pretty good name for it, Circulation. Hmm. Those doctor folks can be kind of creative. That's a pretty good name for a journal like that. It says that this research included 10 studies, and it's a meta-analysis that studies published from 1950 through 2019 that evaluated dog ownership and its association to mortality. The research included 10 studies that yielded data from more than 3 million participants. This is no small sample. Okay, scientists found dog owners were likely to live longer than those who didn't have dogs. Dog owners have 24% risk reduction for death from any other cause, according to the study. And so, hey, having a dog is good for your heart. And I'm looking over at my dog here at this beautiful hotel we're in. And she's kind of kicking back on the bed. That just makes my heart happy. (laughs) So, uh, but not just for emotional heart, for your, get those newspapers out of the way, for your physical heart too. Hey, another thing that makes me happy, I just settled a case, and the interesting thing about this case is it involved a landlord, a landlord, yes. Now look, I'm not going to be a consumer advocate forever, but sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to make the world a better place. And that's my plan. But uh, I figure, you know, I figure I got another 10 years of this consumer advocacy thing, and then I'm going to mellow out, you know. I'm not as young as I used to be. And uh, fighting the good fight 
It takes a lot of work. But this one involved a landlord and a property that uh, one of my companies leased. And this property we discovered had, well, allegedly had mold. The landlord did not admit this. And basically, my company ended up with about $23,000 in relief from this case. And I think it turned on one thing. Thank God we all have little video cameras in our pockets nowadays. Because this air conditioning system, they had these um, mini-split air conditionings. You know, the kind that are in the walls. This was a very poorly constructed property. (laughs) Very poorly constructed property. They cut corners, building it every which way. And the landlord, interestingly, was the developer. And it was just cheaply done. It was just poorly done property. And so it had these mini split air conditioning systems rather than central air that's, you know, a quality air conditioning system. And mini splits aren't always bad, but in this case, the mini split air conditioning systems, at least uh, two or three of them, were leaking. And I kept telling the landlord, you got to fix this, you got to fix this, you got to fix this. They ignored the problem repeatedly. They sent over shoddy people to look at it that weren't actual air conditioning people, which, you know, that's okay as long as they can fix the problem, but they couldn't fix the problem. Anyway, this one air conditioning guy that came over, you know, he pulled the unit off the wall and I happened to be there. So I whipped out my video camera in the phone and I took a video where he was describing that the water is leaking into the wall. And although he was not a mold expert, you know, there had to be a mold problem. And I think there was, I think there was, because, you know, water was just leaking into the wall for a long time, as the air conditioning wasn't properly draining, the condensation was not properly drained. So, um, you know, this is what happens when you cut corners, and um, ended up essentially paying my company about $23,000. So I'm satisfied with the result of that, but it was a hassle to recover it. And um, that's just the way it goes. You know, here's the problem with the world today. Instead of people just being, well, at least my possibly delusional idea of how they used to be in the past, you know, we tend to paint the past with sort of rose-colored glasses, right? Leave it to beaver world, little house on the prairie world where people had honor and they kept their word and they did the right thing and... The people who didn't were ostracized from the community because it was a small world back then and everybody knew each other, and that's the way it was. Sadly, that's not the way the world is anymore because everybody has this sort of over-entitled attitude. And when I say everybody, of course, I'm painting with a broad brush. Not everybody, but a lot of people. This entitlement attitude and this shirking of responsibility, and it's just a, it's an ongoing battle, and we all deal with it, and you all know it, and I know it, and It's just the way it is. This is why when you get in a business deal, don't expect to be able to hold people accountable through the system. You can try, but it's a monumental task to do it. Hopefully, you just want as much as possible in your life will deal with people who are honorable, who play the long game, not the short game. They're not in for the quick buck. They're in for the long buck. Okay, and when you play the long game, you know, you do the right thing, right? But hey, 
a lot of people. We live in an instant gratification society, and sadly, they don't play the long game. They play the short game. It's microwave ovens, fast food, instant gratification. They want to milk as much money out of whatever transaction or whatever deal they're in right then. And they can't wait for return on investment. They're impatient, you know. They watch infomercials. They got to make 60 grand tomorrow rather than becoming wealthy over time. So, yeah, it's the world we live in. What can I tell you? But anyway, I'm happy about that one. Got $23,000 in relief. And uh, if you want to know more, go to jasonhartman.com slash ask and ask me any questions or provide any feedback on the show. We always love to hear from our listeners. Always want to extend the invitation for our listeners and clients to come on the show. Share your experiences. Hey, one of you who's listening wanted to debate me about my thoughts about Europe. What happened? I thought you were coming on the show. That was going to be an interesting spirited debate. Anyway, you're always welcome, folks. So go to jasonhartman.com slash ask or contact your investment counselors and do that. Oh, I know the other thing I was going to tell you before we got to our guest from USA Today. Surprise, 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 as Gomer Pyle would have said, right? Corporate pensions may be a thing of the past. So you've probably heard about this, you know, General Electric made this big move to significantly lower its pension liabilities and they bought some people out of their pensions. We've all heard about the companies that have defaulted on pension obligations. And you know, the default, just like the government's default on the value of our money, isn't necessarily an oblique apparent default. Sometimes the default is subtle, the same way the government and the central banks play it with destroying the value of our money, our savings, our, our investments, right? Because they inflate the value away. So it can be an overt default, or it can be this hidden kind of default where most people don't even notice it. And that happens in pension systems, just like it does with the money supply. So what do you need to do to protect yourself against this disaster? And hey, you public employees, you know it's happening to you. You know these pension plans are underfunded. They're at huge risk. There is a global pension disaster, okay? Just like there's a retail apocalypse, there is a pension apocalypse going on. And, you know, we've talked about it on prior episodes. We'll continue to cover it. But what do you need to do? You need to go to jasonhartman.com. You need to join us for our upcoming Profits in Paradise event. You need to then click on the properties page, and you need to go check out the properties, reach out to an investment counselor, and let us help you find some good properties to secure your future and make your own pension. Rather than depending on anybody else, make your own way in the world, be self-reliant, play the long game, and create your own future. So that is the plan. That's the one that works, not being dependent on governments or corporations or anybody else making your own future. That's the only way to go. Okay, without further ado, let's get to our guest today. You're going to find this to be a fascinating interview. It is a 10th show, episode 1300, and let's talk about ancient technologies. It's my pleasure to welcome the mega best-selling author, Graham Hancock, to the show. He's the author of several books, including America Before, The Key to Earth's Lost Civilization. Graham, welcome. How are you? 
I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to have you. You've got a tremendous body of work. I mean, you were a correspondent for The Economist and uh, traveling around Africa and, and just doing all sorts of research and reporting, it sounds like, huh? Well, that's right. Until the late 1980s, I was very much involved in current affairs. And my last journalistic job was as East Africa correspondent for The Economist. So I was based in Nairobi in Kenya and traveling around East Africa that's where I bumped into a really intriguing and interesting story that became my first book on a historical mystery. Neighboring Kenya is Ethiopia, which was very much on my beat. And central to Ethiopian Christianity is the belief that they possess the lost Ark of the Covenant. Uh-huh. And this struck me as a fascinating story, even from a current affairs point of view. But as I began to investigate it and realized that every single one of the 20,000 churches in Ethiopia has a replica of the Ark of the Covenant in its Holy of Holies, as I realized that there was a community of Ethiopian Jews practicing Old Testament Judaism, I began to realize that there might be something to this claim. And I set out to investigate it and eventually published a book in 1992 called The Sign and the Seal, A Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And that was really the beginning of my adventure in exploring historical mysteries uh, Mm -hmm. and investigating them as an investigative journalist does. So my focus shifted from current affairs to the remote past, but the investigating techniques remained the same. Graham, how many books have you authored? I would say that it's around 20. Uh, (laughs) You've lost count. And how many languages are your books in now? Oh, more than 30 languages. Oh, fantastic. Tell us what you have found. You know, let's talk about your latest book, of course, in, uh, you know, the lost civilizations and and why uh, America is such a part of that. First of all, it's um, part of a logical progression for me. My best-known book by far was published in 1995, and it's called Fingerprints of the Gods. It's still very much in print. And Fingerprints of the Gods makes the case for a lost civilization of the Ice Age, a civilization that was brought to an end in a global cataclysm roughly 12,500 years ago. Since that book was published in 1995, uh, a number of things have happened. First of all, I was subjected to uh, an an enormous amount of really hateful attacks from archaeologists and from their friends in the media for even suggesting that archaeology might have missed an important part of the human story. But secondly, over the last 20 plus years, more and more evidence has begun to come in uh, supporting the basic case that I make, that we're missing a huge chapter of the human story. And this evidence has come in from all over the world. A a very important development was the discovery in Turkey uh, of a site called Gobekli Tepe. This is a gigantic megalithic site. It's a kind of Stonehenge, but it's about 20 times larger than Stonehenge, and it's nearly 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. And it's just impossible to explain in terms of current models of history. It suggests the possibility that after the cataclysm that brought the last ice age to an end, there were people who had advanced knowledge and advanced skills who attempted to pass those on to the hunter-gatherers who also lived in the world at that time. Another hugely important development, again based entirely on mainstream science, is 
the evidence that a really massive cataclysm did indeed strike the earth in the window between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And again, this is based on the work of more than 60 major scientists, mainly in the field of geology. It's called the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. And they are suggesting that the cataclysm, which nobody disputes the world passed through between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago, was sparked off by fragments of a disintegrating comet which hit what was then the North American ice cap because this was during the Ice Age and unleashed uh, unbelievable cataclysm across North America, the scars of which can be seen in the Channel Scablands in the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. uh, for example, and, uh, and indeed in the Carolina Bays in, in uh, South Carolina as well. And the dating of this cataclysm, and again, this is now based entirely on mainstream science, is 12,800 years ago. So mm-hmm. It's very much in the same window that I originally proposed back in 1995. And because the evidence has been turning very much in my in my direction, ideas that might otherwise have been abandoned 20 years ago because of the ferocity of the attacks upon them have resurfaced. And now people are realizing, hang on, maybe Hancock was right about that after mm-hmm. all. Yeah. And the, the area where the most exciting new information is coming in is from the Americas. And that's why I've written this new book, to look at all the evidence from the Americas that relate to this issue of a lost civilization. Fantastic. So does this hold, you know, there are many theories about, uh, how the human population was more advanced or as advanced as we are at one time. I mean, we have all of these structures on Earth and all of these things from the past that cannot be explained. Nobody really knows how the pyramids were built. Does your theory help explain some of this? I hope so, yeah. yes. Okay. First of all, I, I'm very familiar with the Great Pyramid. I've, I've climbed it uh, mm-hmm. five times. It is the most incredible structure in the world, and there has not yet been any satisfactory explanation for how it was built. I, I keep seeing nonsensical headlines where mm-hmm. Egyptologists claim that the blocks were slid into place on wet sand, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Well, that kind of works at ground level, sure. but it doesn't yeah. work 350 feet above the ground. When when the uh, rocks or the stones are 16 tons or something, right? In fact, in the case of the slabs above the so-called King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid, they're actually 70 tons each. Wow. And there are hundreds of these blocks. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've been there. I was there in 1995. I've been on the pyramids too. So I, I know it's just an, it's an amazing thing to see. It really is. So people talk about what's hard for us to relate to possibly is that the lost civilization was advanced, but advanced in a different way that we can't understand. The technology was different than what we think of as technology. Any thoughts on that? That's very much my view. However, to be clear, there were some ways in which this civilization was advanced advanced in the ways we are. Mm -hmm. One example is, is in the form of ancient maps which have survived. In many cases, these were maps that were copied from older source maps in the 1500s, the 1400s, the 1600s of our era. An example is the famous 
Piri Reis map, which was created by a Turkish admiral called Piri Reis in 1513. But he tells us on, in his own handwriting on the map that he based it on more than 100 older source maps and that these maps had been rescued from the library of Alexandria in Egypt before it was burned down and had been carried off to Constantinople, which we now call Istanbul, where Piri Reis uh, happened across these maps. The thing is that the information preserved in those older maps and copied onto his 1513 map uh, shows the world as it looks during the last ice age, number one. And number two, it shows the world with very accurate relative longitudes. And longitude is a technical and scientific problem, which our civilization did not solve until the end of the 18th century. So maps of the world as it looked during the Ice Age with highly accurate relative longitudes suggest a level of technology in our terms that was at least as good as our technology at the end of the 18th century. And that in itself, to say that there was a civilization on the planet in the Ice Age when our ancestors are supposed to have been nothing more than Stone Age hunter-gatherers who were capable of exploring and mapping the world at a level that we could not match until the end of the 18th century, that is an indication of a level of technology that we can understand. But there are many aspects of technology from the ancient world that we can't understand. One of those aspects we've just touched on, which is the construction of the Great Pyramid. It's not just those huge blocks of stone in the Great Pyramid. It's also the fact that the Great Pyramid functions as a scale model of the Earth. That if you take the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply by 43,200, which is not a random number, it's a number generated by a key motion of the Earth itself, you get the polar radius of the Earth. And if you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by the same number, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. So the Great Pyramid is a scale model of our planet and a very accurate scale model of our planet on a scale generated by a key motion of the Earth itself, which is called the precession of the Earth's axis, which unfolds at the rate of one degree every 72 years. So what the Great Pyramid is telling us is that whoever made it and whenever it was made, and we know it was thousands and thousands of years ago, they had a complete knowledge of the size and nature of the Earth. And for the same reason, they placed the Great Pyramid on latitude 30 degrees north, which is one third of the way between the equator and the North Pole. They wanted us to know that they knew the dimensions and character of our planet. And this is a level of knowledge that is far ahead of anything that is supposed to have been available at that time. That's amazing. That's amazing. Would it be possible to build the pyramids today with the equipment we have and the technology we have? Is that even possible today? I think it could be done. Mm -hmm. It would be fabulously expensive. Mm -hmm. And any uh, CEO would immediately ask, why do we want to spend all this money? <laughs> creating this thing. I mean, the, the the human willpower and skill and effort that went into this construction. And by the way, I forgot to mention, it's also oriented to true north within three sixtieths of a single degree. That's almost atomic level precision wow. in the alignment of the Great Pyramid to true north. And when you remember that it weighs six million tons and has a footprint of 13 <laughs> acres, you're, you're, you're dealing with a really inexplicable level of technology. Likewise, if we go to the Americas, uh, fascinating sites that I report on in mm. my new book, America Before. In Ohio, for example, we have two very interesting sites. One is called High Bank Works, 
and the other is called Newark. These are both earthwork sites, gigantic constructions made of earth. And both sites incorporate multiple geometric figures on a very large scale, a scale of thousands of feet. But what they share in common is two particular figures, and, th and those figures are a combination of an octagon and a circle, again, on an enormous scale. The fascinating thing is that although there is 60 miles between Newark and High Bank, they were able to orient these two figures, the octagon-circle combinations in both sites, they were able to orient them at precisely 90 degrees to each other. And to do that across a distance of 60 miles it's been staring us in the face for centuries, but it's only now that the measurements have been done that we've realized how incredibly sophisticated and accurate these ancient builders were. And we don't know how they did it. Yes, we could do it today, but with the level of technology that is attributed to our ancestors, they're not supposed to have been able to do things like that. Likewise, in Peru, the incredible megalithic sites of, of Sacsayhuaman and Cusco, where you have walls made of just enormous blocks of stone weighing hundreds of tons each. Each block is a different shape from the others. They're all interlocked in three dimensions. It looks as though they had a technology to soften stone, to mold it, and then to set it into place. Wow, that's incredible. That is really incredible. Talk to us about, you know, the real history of America, if you would, or the Americas, I should say. Well, this is a really important point because who is it who serves us in terms of interpreting our past to us? It's the discipline of archaeology primarily that does this. Historians deal with written documents from the last few thousand years, but when we want to go back 10, 20, 30,000 years or more, it's archaeology that we entrust with the task. And there's been a problem with American archaeology, which is that until very recently, really less than five years ago, it was the adamant position of all mainstream American archaeologists that there had been no human beings in the Americas before 13,400 years ago. And they had identified a culture which they call the Clovis culture. It's named after a town in New Mexico, as a matter of fact. They call it the Clovis culture. We don't know what they called themselves. And they are supposed to have been the first Americans who entered America 13,400 years ago from Asia. What's happened in the last five years is that this whole model, which has been referred to as the Clovis first model, has been completely discredited and overthrown. It held the past of America in a vice-like grip for the best part of 60 years from the 1960s through until just about five years ago. But it now has completely unraveled and big institutions like the Smithsonian, like Nature magazine are accepting that that model was completely wrong, that archaeologists have misinformed us, that human beings have been in the Americas much longer than 13,000 years. Just to give you a couple of examples, bluefish caves in the Yukon, 25,000 years ago. Topper in South Carolina, 50,000 years ago, excavated by Professor Al Goodyear of the University of South Carolina. The Ceruti Mastodon site just south of San Diego, published in Nature on the 26th of April 2017, 130,000 years ago, 10 times as old as archaeologists previously adamantly insisted human beings had been in the Americas. And this raises enormous problems, because if humans have been in the Americas for 130,000 years, that's twice as long as humans were in Europe and twice as long as they were in Asia and the Middle East. And our whole story of the origins of civilization is now up for grabs. It's possible that civilization did not originate in the so-called 
old world, as we've been taught. It's possible that it originated in the new world. The notion that civilization is an old world invention is very much based on the idea that human beings had been present in Europe and in the Middle East for 60 or 70,000 years, and very much based on the idea that there had been no humans in the Americas before about 13,400 years. You know, it, Graham, it begs the question, is there some, I mean, you've endured a lot of, uh, frankly, hate uh, of people attacking your, your theories and so forth. What's at stake here? Is there a political correctness issue or what's going on? What's the big deal? Or does everybody just want to be right about their own theories? What's happening? I think what we're witnessing in archaeology, and particularly in American archaeology, but it affects the whole world, as a matter of fact, is what is called a paradigm shift, that we have been stuck with a particular body of ideas for a very long time. And that body of ideas has now been discredited. It's very normal. There's actually a book written about this by Thomas Kuhn. It's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Right. And in this That's book, a he goes, book. Yeah. it's a famous book. And he goes into how knowledge progresses in science. And it doesn't progress gradually and slowly. It progresses with revolutions. Mm-hmm. And when a revolution occurs, it turns out that there's a background to it. And that background is a lot of information that was not explained by the previous theory, which had been dismissed by those who held the previous theory. And then more information comes in, which the previous theory can't explain, and that's dismissed as well. But then more information comes in, and it gets harder to dismiss it, and then more comes in and more comes in. So what we're looking at is an accumulation of evidence that cannot be explained by the so-called Clovis first model. I don't think it's sinister. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think we're being deliberately lied to. I think it's the same across all of sciences. If you get a group of powerful individuals who have invested their career in a particular model of how things are, Mm -hmm. they find it very disconcerting to be presented with evidence that suggests everything they've done is wrong and false. And they will fight tooth and nail to protect the existing paradigm. But eventually, as the information that contradicts that paradigm begins to accumulate, they start looking daft, insisting that their old idea is correct. And we've reached that point in American archaeology now, where they're admitting that the old model they worked with is a complete failure. It's totally wrong. We have to rethink everything, and we have to open our minds to the possibility that humans may have been in the Americas for twice as long as they were in Europe or the Middle East, and therefore that civilization itself could have originated in the Americas. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um that that happens in so many arenas of life you know people just don't like being challenged uh you know they've got a lot of investment in their their belief system right no they don't and it's very normal and it's human behavior and science does have a self-correcting mechanism which is that eventually as more and more new information comes out the old idea gets cast away Mm -hmm. and we're witnessing that happening in american archaeology now the question is what comes next because the key issue is that between Between 13,000 years ago and 130,000 years ago, there are huge amounts of deposits all over the United States that have simply never been investigated because until so recently, archaeologists believed there was no point in investigating them because their theory convinced them that there were no human beings in the Americas until 13,400 years ago. So we've got a huge areas of America that have simply not been investigated by archaeology. And then on top of that, we have evidence for a giant global cataclysm of which North America was the epicenter 
which unfolded between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. Mm -hmm. Any more thoughts before you go about the ancient technologies? You know, they these theories about how we had incredible technologies before. We we talked about that in this interview, uh, and you talked about softening stone. Like it's just hard to comprehend, at least for me what kind of technologies might have existed. We all just sort of think of technology as, well, nowadays, computers and processors. And, yeah. and you know, before we thought about it as steam engines. And, you know, now Machines. we're thinking about biotech and the brain and, and DNA technology. But Correct. it's just hard to even understand. Like, we have this view of what technology is. And, I think we have to stop looking at the past as though we're looking in a mirror mm -hmm. and trying to find ourselves in it. And I think we have to look at the past as it is, as a window, mm -hmm. and keep an open mind as to what we see there. The skeptics who attack my work as pseudo-archaeology will be laughing down their sleeves at what I'm going to say next. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm going to say next is simply this, that it's possible that we have untapped human abilities and facilities which we are not using in the modern world. For the last few thousand years, we have steadfastly marched down the route of leverage and mechanical advantage. Mm -hmm. And we have made machines to do work for us. And that those have graduated from steam engines to all the latest technology that exists in the world today. And we're used to doing things with machines. Mm -hmm. What we have to consider, I think, is the possibility that there may be latent faculties of the human mind. Mm -hmm. There's huge amounts of anecdotal information for telepathy, for telekinesis, sure. for example. Telekinesis, yeah. the ability to move objects with mm -hmm. the mind. Yeah. I think that we must consider the possibility that a lost civilization of prehistory may have had a very different approach to technology from ours, and that this is why we find it so difficult to explain their technological feats, because we're trying to explain those feats in terms of what we know, which is leverage and mechanical advantage. Mm -hmm. And skeptics have taught us to disbelieve in any mysterious human faculties like telepathy or telekinesis. Sure. And yet, and yet we are wrong to close our minds entirely to that possibility. We don't know exactly what we are or what we're capable of as a species. Everybody has had the experience of hearing the phone ring and somehow knowing who's at the other end. Right. Maybe, maybe that's just a minor, tiny example of a power of a facility that the human mind has, which we have allowed to lapse in the last few thousand mm -hmm. years, but which a lost civilization of prehistory may have polished up to a very high level of achievement. Sure, sure. And everybody's had the uh, the occurrence of precognate dreams yes. and all, so all sorts of things like that. I would certainly agree with you, but it would seem like there'd be certain people among us that really could use these faculties. You know, maybe some of us can't because we ignore it or, you know, it requires practice or, or whatever. I mean, there are obviously monks and, and people, you know, that uh, engage in like extreme meditational abilities and so forth. But uh, I don't know. It's... Uh... <laughs> There's, for example, Dean Radin, uh, PhD, uh, who uh, works with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, who's, who's one of the scientists who's taking a serious look at these faculties 
that the skeptics find so amusing, the notion that there might be real physical powers attainable through the, directly through the use of the human mind. Mm -hmm. And Dean Radin has um, done a great deal of experimental work on this, which supports it, but it's not a popular subject in our materialist reductionist science. The science that we have in the world today seeks to reduce everything to matter. Mm -hmm. Even consciousness is supposed to be just a kind of accidental byproduct of brain activity. We don't know that. That's not a fact. That is just an opinion that science has. It may be that there's much more to reality than simple matter, which can be weighed and measured and counted, and that while science is doing an excellent job of weighing and measuring and counting things, it may have its eye off another whole other kinds of ball where we do not use physical means in order to move and manipulate matter, but we use the powers of the mind. And it's just my suggestion that some of the extraordinary feats of the ancients, whether it's those gigantic walls at Sacsayhuaman or, the, or those 70-ton blocks above the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid, or indeed the high-precision alignments that we find in sites all around the world, that these might be better explained as a result of the use of faculties that we ourselves are not familiar with today. But the fact that we're not familiar with them and the fact that a certain faction of our scientists doesn't like them doesn't mean that they don't exist and that there are people today who are still capable of deploying these faculties. Yeah, very, very interesting, Graham. Give out your website. My website is grahamhancock.com mm -hmm. and the new book is America Before the key to Earth's lost civilization, and there's loads of information on it on my website. Fantastic. Yeah, the book looks fascinating, and, and you've got such a big body of work. Graham, just out of curiosity, where are you located? Are you in Europe, or where are you? I live in the city of Bath uh, in the southwest of England. It's about 100 miles west of London, and it's called Bath because it's the only city in England with a hot spring. Well, Graham Hancock, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional, and we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.